Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great faithfulness to each and every one of us. We thank you, God, that we have never been alone. Your promises and your word that you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us, that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Father, we hold to those promises and we are grateful for them that you have given us your son, that you have given us your word, that you've filled us with your spirit, and that as a result, we are yours. I pray, Lord, as we turn our hearts and minds to your word, that we would continue in an attitude of worship, that we would have a great desire to hear your voice and to draw closer to you today. We pray for your spirit to be our guide and teacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the last two weeks, we have focused on the vital role of the word of God in our lives. We did that at the end of chapter 5 and into the beginning of chapter 6, where we were encouraged by the author of Hebrews, who, as you know, I believe is Paul, um, to leave behind, and, and not in the sense that we should ignore them or not appreciate them, but in the ability to move on from the essential or elementary principles of our faith. This idea that these things are important, the things that are listed. Um, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, and so forth. But if that's where we stay, then we're not going to move forward into completion or into maturity in Christ. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we had fun, at least I did, talking about eternal security. And I'm not going to go through that whole study again because it took me 56 minutes last week. And I, I'm kind of concerned about how long this one's going to take. So if you missed last week, feel free to go back and check it out. But... The gist of it was this, that yes, we are eternally secure while we abide in Christ. There is not really the possibility that we can lose our salvation because, well, that's goofy. You lose your keys. You lose your cell phone. You don't wake up one morning and go, man, what did I do with Jesus? That's not how that works. But according to the passage we looked at in Hebrews 6 last week, it is possible to intentionally renounce your faith. Now, like I said, I don't have time to get into that right now. <laughs> Feel free to go back and listen to last week's message. We got into it in detail. This week, we turn to Paul's confidence that his audience had better things coming than the judgment for those who reject the gospel that we spoke about last week. Because as we got to the end of last week, we looked at verses 7 and 8. The earth drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated. They receive blessings from God, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, but whose end is to be burned. So Paul talked about the fruitfulness of those who follow Jesus Christ compared to the unfruitfulness of those who don't. 
And that unfruitfulness leads to eternal judgment in verse 8. And so he picks up in verse 9, but, but, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the better things, right? Paul says, I hope better things, or I'm confident of better things concerning you. So that's what we're going to really pick up there in verse 9, talking about his confidence. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation that we speak in this manner. So the word confident here means that I am convinced of better things concerning you, or I am assured of better things concerning you, his beloved audience. So what are these things better than? Well, as I mentioned, these things are better than, what he's confident is that they will have better things than the eternal judgment that we spoke about last week for those who do not bear fruit in their lives in Christ, those who were cast out and burned. And I know it's so unpopular to talk about sin and judgment, but we all know, or at least we should, that we're sinners. And for those who are apart from Christ, there is judgment. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I love that verse. If you're anything like me, you are keenly aware of your sinfulness. If you're anything like me, you are keenly aware of the fact that you don't deserve, well, anything, except for death, destruction, punishment. You guys feel good yet? But, but, I love buts in the Bible. But God sent his son Jesus Christ to deliver us from that wrath. And I, I absolutely love that. How can we be confident that eternal judgment is not what waits for us? Well, not, yeah, not because I'm good, not because I did really good this week or this month or this year, because, boy, that wouldn't work, but because of Jesus Christ, because I believe in his death and resurrection. And so then he goes on that he's confident of their better things, yes, things that accompany salvation. So what accompanies salvation? Well, the fruit that we spoke about last week are those things which accompany salvation that we are looking at today. 
right? The fruit is spoken of in multiple places in Scripture. And fruit, if you remember, or by way of reminder, fruit is that what comes out of our lives as a result of our relationship with Christ, right? We don't show this fruit in order to get saved. We don't work in order to get saved. This fruit comes out of our lives because we are saved. I love, we use fruit trees as a great example. How do you know an apple tree is an apple tree? Because it grows apples. Simple, easy. How do you know I'm a Christian? Well, hopefully when you look at me, the fruit in my life is Christ-like. This fruit doesn't come from me. Remember, this fruit we bear, we don't produce, according to John 15. God is the vine. The Son is the vine dresser. We're the branches. As we abide in the vine, he produces the fruit we bear. So it's not about what I do. It's about what he's doing in me. This is the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and two more that I can't remember. Goodness and faithfulness. There should be seven. I always remember seven. I always miss one or two. Um, We have things like the fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. In Ephesians 5, verse 9, I love that. As a follower of Christ, what should be evident in my life? The goodness of God, the righteousness of Christ, and his truth being lived out in and through my life. You see that? Wow, that, that person's a Christian. I hope that your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5. We have the fruit of repentance, one of my favorites. Luke 3, 8, uh, John the Baptist talked about that. What is the fruit of repentance? Change. It's change. How many times have you had somebody apologize to you and then not change? Anybody? How many of you have done it? Right? I've done it where I've apologized and then turned around and done the same thing the next day or a week later or a month later. Is that the fruit of repentance? No. The fruit of repentance is not just I'm sorry I got caught, but I'm truly sorrowful for what I've done. And by God's grace and power and truth, I want to change. The fruit of the word of God in our lives. Isaiah 55 um, beautiful passage, verses 10 and 11, where we're told that God's word goes forth and produces the fruit that he sends it forth to produce. It's not going to come back to him void. The word of God is a guaranteed investment. Right? You ever, you ever remember that guy on TV? It's back like in the 90s. Maybe he's still around. But he wore all the dollar signs on the green coat. And, and he would sit there and shout at you in his infomercial on how you could find all this free government money if you just knew where to look. Am I the only person that remembers this guy? Okay, a few other people do, right? How many know he was lying? Uh, what did he, if you send me $50, I'll tell you how to become rich. Well, I think you just did. You get yourself a TV spot and you 
con people out of $50. You get enough people to do that, you're doing pretty well. But what if it really was a guaranteed investment? What if you knew that you knew that you knew that if you put $1,000 into a stock that you were going to get a million dollars back? How many of us would put the $1,000 into that stock? I would. According to Isaiah 55, the word of God is a guaranteed investment. Whatever he sends it out to do, it will do. It will produce fruit. It will not return to him void. See, I thought I had a guaranteed investment when I bought Dogecoin. Anybody buy Dogecoin besides me? Good, you guys. Oh, Adam, we can weep together later. Now, it's one of the cryptocurrencies that was out there that was supposed to go huge. When I got into it, it was at 0.0013 cents a coin. Now, I only put like 25 bucks in. It's now worth about a buck 50. <laughs> right? Which is why I only put $25 in. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, but I, I'm not really an investor. Now, you know why. But that's not the way the word of God works. So here, in our passage today... He's talking about these specific fruits that accompany salvation. And then we're going to continue to look at as we unpack these verses. So I want to point out once again, even though I already said it, that these fruits, these works are not the cause of our salvation. We are saved by faith, faith through grace alone. But these works will flow out of our salvation. The word accompany here in this passage means in relation to. So good works and the fruit that we just talked about are in relation to our salvation. They are not and never can be the cause of it. The cause of our salvation is Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that more as we continue through the book of Hebrews. But if you get up into chapter 12, he talks about how he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. I love this. So God is not unjust. He's not going to forget our work. He's not going to forget our labor of love. This is a beautiful statement. We, of course, know that God is not unjust. And one of the ways this is demonstrated is in the fact that he will never forget what we have done for him, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The word for work here means toil, effort, act, or deed. And the word for minister means to attend, wait upon, or serve. Our labor of love are those acts, deeds of service that we do by the unconditional love of God at work in us. The word for love in this passage is the word agape. It's a word that many of us know. It was actually coined for use in the New Testament as a description of God's love. It means unconditional love. And as that unconditional love of God is at work in each of us by the power of his Holy Spirit to minister to, toil, wait upon, serve, those around us? Well, God's 
Can you remember that? I love that. This is a love that serves others, expecting nothing in return. This is what we do when we are motivated by the love of Christ. So first, it's something that we do expecting nothing in return. In Luke 6.35, Jesus said, Love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. What an amazing verse. How many of you are grateful that he is kind to the unthankful and evil? I know I am. Because there are plenty of times where I am not thankful. And for those of you who know me pretty well, there's some evil that gets stirred up every now and then. Ask John. It happens to both. Pickleball. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend, hoping for nothing in return. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look, not at, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Right? He's not telling you to ignore yourself. Right? You go hungry so you can feed someone else. But if you've got food and you know somebody who doesn't have food, well, then you should use some of your food to make sure they have food. It's pretty simple. That's not the world we live in, is it? It's not the world we live in. The world we live in is I have food. If you don't have food, then you stay away from me because I got food and you can't have my food. That's our attitude. Not always. Not every day. But that, that's the attitude we see in the world. I remember... Years ago, I went on a missions trip to India, and, and I met a missionary couple there who were, um, in India, they have a thing known as power brokers in the neighborhoods. So essentially, uh, there's so many people, and there's so much crime, and there's so many problems that you know the police can't do everything, the military can't do everything, the government can't do everything. So in a neighborhood, a person who has a lot of money, they buy up a lot of property, essentially they control that neighborhood. So if something's going wrong, they deal with it. Now, this missionary couple lived in this neighborhood, and the people, they, they kept feeding the homeless children in their neighborhood. And their neighbors started threatening them, started threatening to kill them because they were feeding the, the homeless children in the neighborhood. And what the neighbors said that they should be doing was feeding the cows that wandered free because they worship cows in India. And so they should be feeding the cows and let the children starve. Because according to Hinduism, if you're poor and destitute and homeless, you did something awful in your previous life and you deserve this, so now you need to die poor, homeless, and destitute so you can come back as something better. That's, that's the attitude of those who don't have the hope of the gospel. And so they said, no, we're going to feed the children. And the people in the neighborhood said, if you keep feeding the children, we're going to kill you. So the power broker found out about this. Well, the power broker came to their defense. 
Did he come to their defense because they were Christians? No, it's because they paid their bills with American money. Dead serious. And the power broker was making money on that. And he didn't want to lose that money by letting everybody else kill him. So he told everyone else to lay off, and they did. Now, we give glory to God for that, but that's the attitude of the world we live in. That's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to give. Not because I hope if I give to you, you'll give back to me. I'm supposed to love. Right? Jesus said, if you only love those who are going to love you back, you know, that's what the tax collectors do. But you love those who won't love you. That's a different attitude, isn't it? When we present that to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, well, we will turn our city upside down. And this, of course, must be motivated by the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, The love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should know, live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The word compel here is an amazing word. It means to be held in union, to be held together, or to be a prisoner of. We are to be held in union to the love of Christ. We are to be prisoners to the love of Christ. Have you ever thought about yourself as a prisoner of love? Sounds like a great 80s rock ballad or, or something, you know, a wailing guitar solo that I'm a prisoner of love. And I can see the video on MTV scantily clad women running about on the stage while some guy with long hair and makeup on screams into the microphone about being a prisoner of love. I should have looked that up. I bet there's a song out there. It's got to be. Did the Eagles do a song called Prisoner of Love? Yeah. I'm not quite that old. I mean, I remember the Eagles. I like the Eagles. Big Don Henley fan, but not quite that old. We are the prisoners to the love of Christ. That is what we are supposed to be, willingly, right? We are not incarcerated against our will, but we are prisoners nonetheless. And this is our only motivation. How can we give without expecting anything in return? How can we live that unselfishly, only by the love of Jesus Christ at work in us, by the power of his Holy Spirit applying that to us because if we let anything else motivate us anything at all we're going to be wrong and I know that seems a little harsh a little black and white a little one sided too bad Galatians 1.10 says for do now or do I now persuade men or God do I seek to please men for if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I want to be compelled by the love of Christ because my goal is to stand before him one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You want to know? Sometimes that means that people here aren't going to be real happy with me. Now, I know that's not going to be any of you because you're all wonderful people and, and you love me. I haven't figured out why. Um, but sometimes we're going to say things that well, people don't like. Sometimes we're going to say things that somebody might find offensive. Sometimes we're going to say something that someone's going to go, oh, you hurt my feelings. I don't care if I hurt your feelings with the truth. I'm not going to go out of my way to hurt your feelings. But if I'm telling you the truth of what this says and that hurts you, well, that, that's the Holy Spirit at work. That ain't me. And if you've got a problem with me because of it, I don't care. And I know that sounds terrible, but I'm not here to make you happy. I want you to be happy. Because being happy is awesome. But I want you to be holy a whole lot more. And I want you to be saved even more than that. I want you to go to heaven. I don't want to get to heaven one day and, and, and see a list of people, perhaps. I don't know if that's how it'll work. But that aren't there because I failed. I don't want to see that. So you're always a hope when you get the truth from me. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And I know I got into this a couple weeks ago, but man, it is it grates on me. It grates on me because there are two many people who call themselves followers of Christ who are more concerned about pleasing human beings than they are about pleasing God. There's too many. There's some in this town. I'm not going to name names. But I know of other pastors in this town, pastors, who are not preaching the truth of God's word. I know they exist. I've heard some of their messages. I've talked to some of them. I know. I've heard some of these pastors say, well, the important thing is that we get them in the door. So, so we're not going to talk about sin, and we're not going to talk about judgment, and we're not going to say anything that, that might make them upset because we want them in church. And once they're in church, then hopefully we'll build that relationship, and at some point in time, we'll share the truth. That is a dangerous game. You come in this building, and whether it's me or one of our elders, and whether it's a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, or you, you come in to hang out in the office, or we have the class we're getting ready to start, or you see me at City Market, the truth doesn't change. It's never going to change. As much as I would love to see every seat in here full, and I believe it's coming. I think God's at work in an incredible way. We've seen it. We're experiencing it, and I'm grateful for it. More important to me than every seat being full is that for every seat that is full, that person knows Jesus Christ. So much more important to me. And this happens... As we serve one another and as we serve the world around us, 
selflessly and motivated by the love of Christ. He says, which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. When we are serving others as a labor of love, we are serving him. We show love toward his name as we minister to the saints, other followers of Christ. And this, of course, goes beyond just serving in the church. But what we need to know is that whatever we do in any aspect of our lives can and should be an act of service. Matthew 10, 40 through 42, Jesus said, He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Think about what that's saying. When I serve you, Hopefully, if I'm motivated by the love of Christ, I'm serving you, I'm serving him. As you receive my ministry, you're receiving him. As you serve me, serve my family, serve our church, you're giving that cup of cold water that you will by no means lose a reward. When we give and support missionaries, it's the same thing. When we give and support ministries within our community, it's the same thing. Now, don't take that to mean that your service is writing a check. We're commanded to give, but your service has to go well beyond that. You've got to get up, you've got to go out, and you've got to make disciples. That's what we're commanded to do. Church is awesome. I love being in church on Sunday. But this, this is where we are encouraged supported and trained where we use it is our business jesus goes on in matthew 25 verses 33 through 46 and i'm not going to read it all i encourage you that can be your homework for those 13 verses but he repeatedly says assuredly i say to you inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren you did it to me Right? When, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison or sick, you came to visit me. And they said, well, when did we do that? Jesus said, as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. To those who failed to do it, they said, well, when did we fail to do that? And he said, as much as you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. He takes these things personally and so our goal I think Colossians 3.17 says whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him that's our goal you wake up tomorrow morning maybe you gotta go to work what do it with the goal of, of doing so in the name of the Lord Jesus. You're at home taking your family, do it 
in the name of the Lord Jesus. You go to Walmart, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. You come to church, yes, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything you do, everything, word or deed. And as we do that, we give thanks to God the Father through The last two verses we're going to look at, 11 and 12, he says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So we're going to close with these two verses where we are exhorted to diligent service, and warned to not become lazy. He says, we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. The word for diligence here means earnestness, eagerness, and care. We do this because we hold our full assurance to the end. Our service is the outflow of our trust in Jesus for salvation. That's what James 2.18 reminds us that we demonstrate our faith by our works. And Colossians 3, uh, 24 tells us that whatever you do, do heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So to be diligent, earnest, to do it with care. This is the opposite of becoming sluggish. Apathy, I think, is the death of any church. How many of you heard of Brother Andrew? Old priest guy, wrote a bunch of good stuff. This is what he said. Did you like that description? <laughs> I just appreciate that made you laugh. <laughs> this is what Brother Andrew said. Persecution is an enemy the church has met and mastered many times. Indifference could prove to be a far more dangerous foe. I want you to think about that in our world right now. Because in our world right now, there are places where if you give your life to Christ, there's a, a pretty good possibility you're going to die. You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your home. You're going to lose your job. You're going to go to prison, and you might die. And there's people that go, you know what? I know Jesus is real. I'm going to give my life to him. I don't care about the consequences. That's awesome. But that's in places where persecution is the norm. What happens here? Well, I mean, I guess I could, I could give my life to Christ. That's fine, but I'm so busy. Well, you know, I, I know I should go to church, but, oh, Sundays is my only day to sleep with. Oh, I, I would share the gospel with, with my neighbor, but what if they get angry with me? Then it's going to be awkward. And we wonder why our nation is going the direction it's going. Oh, we want to blame the government. That's a whole other discussion. We want to blame the sinners we want to blame anybody and everybody 
but who? Us. There's a reason that God told us in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and pray, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. And we love to throw that verse out there. Oh, only if, if the current administration would humble themselves. That's not what that verse says. Well, only if those who are marching in the pride parades would humble themselves. It's not what that verse says. Who's supposed to humble themselves? We are. Who's supposed to repent of their wickedness? God's people. Oh, but we're the church. We're not wicked. What? <clears throat> <clears throat> Yes, we are. It's because too many in the church have become indifferent. You know, and, and I'm saying all this, right, because you know I've never done anything like that. I've done it too. More often than not. Because sometimes it's just easier not to say anything. And I've repented of that and done it again. God is calling us to more than that. To shake off this apathy. To shake off this indifference. To be filled with the power of his Holy Spirit. And to win this world for Christ. Proverbs 12.27 says, The lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. Proverbs 13 verse 4 the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. And don't take that to speak of material wealth. The soul shall be rich. What makes our soul rich? Well, a growing relationship with him. Revelation 3, verse 15 and 16. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That verse always astounds me, every time I read it. Because what Jesus is saying to them, and what he's saying to us, is I would rather you not be saved at all than be lukewarm. That's a pretty harsh statement. So you're either hot, or you're cold. You're either on fire for the Lord, following after him, pursuing what he wants you to do, or don't do it at all. You, I know, oh, how could he say that? People might not come back. I care much more about your eternal destination than where you're sitting next Sunday morning. And that's the truth of the word. Not me. Sometimes I kind of wish it was just my opinion then you could dismiss it and so could I. But it's not my opinion and we can't dismiss it. He goes on to end with, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We are called to follow the example of those whose faith and patience brought them into the inheritance of God's promises. We're going to see that when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, the, the beautiful, what we call the hall of faith. But until then, there's a lot of people, a lot of those who have gone before us whom we can imitate. 
In 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. That's the order. When you know somebody who is truly following Christ, it's okay to imitate them. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. And then there's kind of the contrast in 3 John verse 11, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Now here's the danger. Let me give you this little caveat before we move forward. Sometimes we use the failures of other people to excuse our own sin. Don't do that. That's not the imitation that's being spoken of. Well, you know, so-and-so, they, they say they're a Christian, but they do this, that, and the other thing, so it's, I'm not that bad, or it's okay. Uh-uh. Imitate those who imitate Christ. Or just imitate Christ. How do we do that? He showed us how to live. He demonstrated it for us. Now, I think one of the biggest issues we have as disciples to or apprentices of Jesus is our impatience that leads us to doubt and then give up too quickly. Anybody else ever experienced that? We were talking about Warren Wiersbe this morning. I got a great quote from Warren Wiersbe. It says, others give up and turn back. But the child of God does not have to stop or go back. He can use the rocky places in life as stepping stones to climb higher. We as followers of Christ are meant to imitate others and ultimately to imitate Jesus. This means that we trust when it seems impossible. It means that we wait on God even when and especially when his timing isn't our timing. We do this by the power his all-sufficient grace provides. And when we do that, we will receive his promises. There's a verse in Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10, which has been a verse that we as a church, well, I don't know if you know this, but you should. It's on the back of our bulletin. We go over it every time we have an elders meeting. We go over it a lot. That we've been holding on to. And this is how... The word of God says it. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Think about that verse. Don't give up. Don't give up. I think all too often, Right? We see the next hill. I don't, I don't want to climb the next hill. I'm going to die in the valley. But over the next hill is the oasis. And it's tempting. Anybody here ever quit? I don't, I don't care what we're talking about. But you just told God, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I give up. I'm not going forward. Elijah is a great example of that. Remember that after he uh, wiped out the 450 prophets of Baal and, and uh, uh, 
Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he's like, that's it. He goes and hides under the broom bush. I'm done. Kill me. I'm not going back. And God said, here's a snack. Take a nap. That's kind of the message Bible version, but that's what he said. So he takes a nap. He has a snack. He wakes up. God says, here, have another snack. You got a long walk ahead of you. He goes on a 40-day journey out in the middle of the mountains. God says, what are you doing? And Elijah says, you don't get it. Nobody will listen to me. Nobody will do what I tell them. Everybody's following after these false gods. I'm the only one. Just kill me. Go read it. Back in the book of 1st or 2nd Kings. And God says, oh, come on. Right? And there's the earthquake, and there's the fire, and, and the wind, and then there's a still, small voice. And the second time, Elijah, what are you doing? He gives the same spiel. And God goes, uh-uh. You're not alone. About 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. And he gives them instructions on how to get back to work. I so relate to that account in Scripture. There have been times, even while I've been here, much as I love this church, much as I love this city, as much as I love you all, there have been times where I'm like, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. I'm done. Can't make me stomp my little feet and throw my little tantrum. And every time, God is patient with me the way he was patient with Elijah, and then he tells me to go back to work. Every single time. And, well, we're still here. And I'm holding to this promise because we have, as a church have not grown weary in doing good. Which means I'm going to hold to the promise of his word. Remember, a promise which will not return void. That in due season, we're going to reap. And our harvest Folks, our harvest is ripe. Look at this city we live in. There are a lot of people out there who need Jesus. So let's close. Last week we ended with a question about the fruit God is producing in your lives, and I, I hope you spent some time contemplating that question. Today, as we study these verses, I'm reminded that God wants to see in our lives those things which accompany salvation. He wants to produce this fruit in us, but we have to be willing participants. Clearly from this passage, God wants us to serve him and to serve others with diligence, knowing that as we do so and we do not give up, he will bring us a reward and he will bring us a harvest. Or more accurately, we will bring him a harvest. And maybe that's a reward that we're going to see here. Most likely it's a reward we're going to see in eternity. However, the reward can never be our motivation, but the love of Christ. It is to be a labor of love as we are prisoners to the love of Christ. We do this because we love him who first loved us 
and because we love others compelled by the love of Christ. So I'm going to do what I always do. It should be used to it by now. I'm going to ask you a couple questions that are going to make you like me just a little less. The first one, pretty straightforward, and that is, do you know Jesus? The, one of the issues that we are really talking about here is living out our purpose in Christ by serving the world around us. And this means nothing to the person who does not know Christ and therefore has not actually discovered their God-given purpose. So we start there. If there's anybody here or anybody online or anybody who listens to the recording of this message later, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the grave conquering sin and death, and that he is offering you the free gift of salvation. If you don't know that, you need to. That, that is what all of eternity is based on. And so if you need to leave us a comment on Facebook or visit our website and send us a message or shoot me an email, I don't care. If you don't know that, that's first. Now for the rest of us, Number one, it's technically number two, but that's number one for the rest of us. And that is, do you know your purpose? In other words, do you know what God has uniquely created you to do? Every act of service motivated by the love of Christ will, of course, honor him. But each of us has a specific calling. One that may be fulfilled within the church or that may be fulfilled outside the walls of the church, or both. Whatever the case, if you do not know your God-given purpose, you need to know it. And isn't, God is so convenient. He makes my life a lot easier. Because the class thing, I was supposed to start announcing it last week. The class will start next month. I was going to start announcing it last week, and I forgot. So, I wrote myself a note. I put it in the bulletin for this week, put the little sign-up sheet out there, and then I started working on my message, and I'm like, huh, cool. So consider that class if you do not know what your God-given purpose is, because Ephesians 2.10 tells me that you have one. So does Psalm 139 and Jeremiah chapter 1, and a host of other places that each of us is created uniquely by God to do something. And I'm going to tell you something. I found out what that was for me. Oh, what a gift. It's a gift that I, every week, get to do what I know I was created to do. That, it's just awesome. Right? Now, what you're created to do, probably different than what I'm created to do. And that's okay. You're going to be good at things that I'm not. I'll give you a great example. John lovingly pointed out this morning that, that I'm stupid concerning cars. I know how to make them go forward and go backward, left and right. I always know how to turn the music on and make sure the air works. But that's about, I mean, I, if my tire's low, I, I know to take it to someone to fill it up with air. Okay, I could do that myself. I just don't like to. Um, right? That's not my gifting. But there are people who are gifted with that. And there's ways to use that for the kingdom of God. I'm going to spend a lot of time on that, and this sermon's already long enough. But if you don't know what your purpose is, you need to find out. 
Finally, if you know what your purpose is, are you walking it out by God's grace and power? Are you being diligent with it? If you are, good for you. Then you need to go deeper. You need to go farther with your calling. Because there are no plateaus in following Christ. You never get to the place, all right, right? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm doing an okay job at it, I think. I'm there, right? If I could just stay right here, everything will be great until I die. Because if you're not moving forward, you're slipping backwards. There are no plateaus. However, if you know what you're supposed to do and you're not doing it, why not? What's holding you back? Is it a sin? Is it laziness? Is it fear? I don't know. That's not up to me. But I can tell you what God has uh, confronted me with all this week is that sometimes I'm like that person I just described. I'm a little too content, right? Which is really odd, because there's a lot of places that I'm not content, which is another issue that God and I are working on together. Well, he's working on it in me. <laughs> I'm just kind of resisting. Um, but in that area, I'm like, I, I sometimes get that way. Oh, I, Monday morning, I get to get up. I get to work on my sermon this week. I've got a couple counseling appointments. i got a meeting here. I'm having coffee with that person. Preach on Wednesday. Preach on Sunday. Oh, yeah. God's like, what, what? But there's more. But, but more than what? No, there's more. Not more so that my name can get bigger, but so that his can get bigger. That I'm supposed to be walking in. You guys want me to stop? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And I pray, God, that you would help us to diligently serve you love you, to follow you, to be filled with the power of your spirit so that we can do this by your grace, by your power, by your guidance. I pray, Father, for any person listening who doesn't know you, that's number one. Draw them to yourself by your spirit right now. I pray for any person who's here who is struggling to understand their purpose, their calling, their gifting, what you've created them for. I pray, Father, that you would speak to their heart and help them to seek you and to even get help if they need it to find that purpose. And I pray for those of us who know our calling. Help us, Father, to walk it out, to go farther and deeper so that we can exalt your name so that we can build your kingdom by your power and your grace for your glory in Jesus name